you can do something with your life that's absolutely extraordinary for the sake of the gospel and alleviating poverty. I think we have a drastic problem on our hands right now. We live in a generation that's idea of social justice is to like something on Facebook or share it. Or apparently you, people use Snapchat now, I don't know. But what's amazing about all of those ideas is that they've, they've in the process of making it easier to share a vision, easier to spread information, they've made it also easy to be apathetic. It feels empathetic, because yes, I endorse it. I press the thumbs up. But in actuality, it's more like this, right? Nothing, somewhere in the middle. It's a thumb on the side. Because what it's doing is it may share something, it may help spread a message, but unless we physically get our hands dirty and do action, that's what the world is really made of. That's how things change, right? When we first started, when we first were talking about the idea of Jesus' economy, my wife, she wasn't quite sold on the idea, and we were driving down the road, and I pointed to her all of the, you know, all the power lines running down the road we were at, and I said, think about this. At one point in time, Thomas Edison said to someone, I'm going to create electricity around the world. That going on, right, the electricity running down the roads, it inspired me. And I said to her, imagine how crazy he must have seemed. Somebody must have said to him, you would have to run wires all over the whole world. And he said, yes, we're going to do that. Right? That's nuts. Completely crazy. And it happened. Right? We now have rockets that go to space and come back and can be reused. Right? This is the world we live in. Meanwhile, most of our world, while that craziness is going on, is thinking about the issues of poverty and the issues of people not hearing Jesus' name as something they can like or share on Facebook. That's all they're doing with it. And that is deeply sad, right? We have more opportunity, more interconnectedness than we ever have, more people making drastic changes for our world than we ever have. But this area is not being paid attention to. So I know sacrifice. This is the story. I know it really well. So much so that it's become like, you know, my old friend. I sold my house and nearly everything I own to go full time into this. Dead serious. My wife and I, we were, we were living, right, we were living in this house. I had this job. I was a publisher for um, a tech company that had launched a publishing arm, a Bible software company. And I was at the helm of two major projects at the top of my publishing career. Just earlier this year, the study Bible I edited came out in print with Zondervan, which is the largest Bible publisher in the world. And I'm at the helm of that thing, right? I was at the top of my game. And God called us to do this. And I chose. That was a noble profession, right? For somebody else, that's a godly profession. That's good work. But for me, it wasn't my call. It was something God had given me to do for a time. I had to give up success, give up ambition. To say, I'm going to sacrifice power. I'm going to sacrifice money for the sake of making a vision real. That I think, while those are noble pursuits, I think that this pursuit, this one, is the one that truly could change our planet. So we decided we're going to save all of our money for years on end. I mean, I had a three-year working exit strategy no one else knew about. I hired a guy who I'd planned to replace my job. 
I was making myself obsolete, so much so that it became questionable. Meanwhile, I was working 80 hours a week oftentimes, but I was intentionally moving out of my leadership role and into just a primarily editorial role to finish my big projects. And we decided to sell all of our stuff and follow Jesus. It wasn't enough to simply spread a message. I had to lead by example. I had to be willing to do it. And we had invested the initial capital for our organization. It had been money that we had set aside for all these years from when I worked from the time I was 16 to 20 as a piping inspection drafter. Weird, right? In an oil refinery. Um, and we'd set aside this money that no matter how tight it got, we weren't going to touch it because we knew God wanted to use it for something. And then the day the Jesus economy came along, we decided to invest it there. And so over and over again, we kept re-upping our investment, right? Putting more and more into it to get it going. But we realized that it came to a point where it was like our stock wasn't going to trade any higher unless we put our mental, full mental energy into it. My wife had already been doing this for four years, right? She's a saint. She's amazing. And I knew that I had to do the same. But see, the world doesn't work like an iPhone, right? It's not instant gratification. There's not instant gratification for sacrifice. You would think when you do this and you're in the position I am where literally I knew thousands of scholars around the world who had worked on my projects, that you'd have all these people rally around you, right, and support your page. Your page says, hey, come on, support my missionary work. I'm doing this. You would expect it to be a little easy, right? The world doesn't work that way. In fact, I realized really quickly who were my real friends and who were not because when I made that decision and I gave up power, all of a sudden, all these people who I thought were my friends, I found out that the main reason why they were my friends is because they had, I had something that they wanted. I was in control of a publishing imprint. I could hire them as writers. I could make their work go forward. I could spread it to my friends who I knew in the industry. I could suggest their book to somewhere else. I could do the favor. The moment that I didn't have the favor to deliver, and instead it was all about the work of spreading the gospel to an unreached people group and bringing poverty alleviation there, they weren't there. They were all gone, all of them. And it felt alone and dark and miserable. It is not satisfying in traditional ways. But through that process, I discovered what true faith means, right? The author of Hebrews describes it as faith is believing in that which cannot be seen but is hoped for. That is faith. I couldn't see it. I still can't see it. I don't know how God's going to build it all. I don't know if I can keep doing it. I know the equity money out of my house that I sold is running out. I know that it's going to be hard. But I believe that God will work a way through it. But it's not going to be in the way as we expect, right? It's not going to be through these people who I thought really loved me and really cared. It's going to be instead an, an act of, of pain and sacrifice. But I learned to, to follow Jesus in the middle of that. I learned who he was. And this situation revealed to me a larger issue, one that I want you to think about deeply. Because you're here, right, at an institution where you're getting one of the best educations in the world. You have an opportunity with your intelligence, your abilities, to truly fix the problems of our world. And this is not platitudes for me. This is real life for me, right? I live this stuff. And I've seen it, right? Because the people that I tell about, like our chief technology officer who volunteered his time coming into this, 
or Rachel, our executive assistant, bringing her immense talent to make things like this happen. They rallied around this because they saw that someone was willing to go first, number one, that I would never ask them to do something I wasn't willing to do myself. And number two, because Jesus was in it. And that's the main reason. Because he was at work. And they saw his work going on through it. And through that, I get to see this idea transcend me and my wife and become something larger. Something that if I wasn't here anymore, I believe would go on. And that's what it means to have a truly Jesus economy, right? That Jesus' work goes on even if we're not present. It's based on self-sacrifice, his currency, its love, its acts of love for the sake of our world, for the impoverished, the unreached. The larger issue, though, was that our generation likes the idea of alleviating poverty far more than the actual act of alleviating poverty. Think about that. We like the idea more than we like the act. We're comfortable liking and sharing posts on Facebook, but ask us to take real action and little to nothing will happen. Some of you may have experienced this. It's, it's frightening. And when I say this, I consider myself part of that generation. Likewise, we like to talk about the need to bring the gospel to the unreached far more than we're willing to do the actual work. So we like the idea, right? We like to talk about it. It's inconvenient to make sacrifices. It just is, right? The whole nature of the word says that. It's not convenient. It's far from being instantly gratifying. It's an act of faith. We need to teach people what following Jesus really means. Writing to his young apprentice, Timothy, Paul says this about it. He says, the aim of our charge is love that issues, that comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion. Does this sound familiar, anyone? Vain discussion. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. My favorite thing ever that happens to me all the time, and this is super sarcastic, but I'm going to say it anyways. <laughs> People come up to me and like to tell me about the regions where we work who have never been there, who simply did a degree in the field. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I've seen Bihar, India. I know. And I don't need to know how to pronounce it either. Because I also know that. <laughs> this happens all the time, right? It's just ridiculous. I'm like, okay, I'll tell you what. When you can pile up your sacrifice, and we pile up what's going on over here, then we can compare the sacrifice and we can decide who gets the vote. And that's actually what Paul says all the time. He goes, you want me to cite my CV? Corinthian church should be super apostles, is what he calls them. I will do so. And he goes through a whole list of things that are his credentials. And he says, but by the way, all of that is junk. What matters is that I've been beaten for the gospel. I've been shipwrecked for the gospel. I have sacrificed for the gospel time and time and time again. Because that's what measures who a person truly is, right? Think about the heroes of our world. Sacrifice, right? They make sacrifices for the sake of other people. That's what makes them truly noble, truly worth following. That's why Paul could say these words to Timothy. And at the universal, university level, I think we're really good at teaching people 
how to think critically and to critique. This is what I specialized in, by the way. My field is called textual criticism. But it's easy to critique. It's so hard to create. So hard. It takes emotion and raw grit. There's a time and place for critique, given, and discussion of the law using Paul's analogy. But we need to be better at teaching people to take action, getting them to do the work. Do it. You could sit all day and nitpick about a development model or how we should and should not be doing missions. And these are important discussions. But meanwhile, there are people actually dying, right? Dying in our world, spiritually and physically. The world isn't changed by mere theory. It's changed by theory in action, right? You have to have a good model, but you also got to do it. In our top universities, we have Christians pursuing noble training occupations. Many of you are doing this, right? Lawyers, doctors, executives, scholars, teachers, noble occupations. While these indeed are noble and important pursuits, many people will quickly lose sight of the real purpose of life as a Christian. Right? They're going to be consumed by consumerism. It almost ate me alive, let me tell you. As soon as you start making good money, it'll do it to you. They will be wrapped into businesses and striving after promotions. They will become consumed with possessions and money if they haven't already been so. We have Christians learning to be teachers of the law without knowledge of the core ideas of the Bible, but who are living without true understanding, as Paul would say it. This understanding can only be gained through self-sacrifice, I would argue. The most amazing, wise people I know are the ones who made the greatest sacrifices. They are the ones I look to as my teachers. Surround yourself with those people. They will inspire you to be better. It can only be gained through doing what Jesus has called us to do, to give of ourselves for the impoverished, marginalized, outsider, the word we don't like to say these days, refugee, and dedicate our lives to bringing the freedom of the gospel to those who have not heard it. But I'm telling you, this is going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult to reverse the trends of our generation, of the Facebook generation of Christians, who seem interested in alleviating poverty and spreading the gospel, but are largely apathetic. But I have a few ideas for you, right? We can start by exposing people simply to the truth. For example, there are 101 million people in the state of Bihar where we're working who have never, ever heard the name of Jesus. Ever. How about this fact? 0.3% of our funding is going to unreached people groups as a church. Less than one half of 1%. The rest going where the gospel already is. What? I'm not saying we should cut off that money. I'm saying we need better ways to get more into the places that are unreached. So, right, you've heard that Jesus Economy, right, we have an entirely remote team. We have an entirely volunteer team. Praise God for Google Hangouts. <laughs> and we are doing this through just simply people making simple acts of self-sacrifice. So I think that to deal with this, we need to be thinking about how we can work together to pull our resources to empower the work of the global church. And we need to be thinking about what's going on in these regions. So here's an example for you. In Bihar, right, I met a man who lived his entire life as a gang leader and an assassin. No joke. And he'd come to Christ. And I remember just the, the sweet look on his face telling this story about how one day he was getting ready in the evening to go out, commit another act of crime, 
and a church planter happened to be getting on his bike, ride back home. And the man stopped and said, hey, who are you, right? What are you doing here? And the guy told him, he's like, you know, hey, I'm here, I'm here talking about the love of Jesus. And he said, huh. And he started talking to him about it. By the end of that night, the man had taken his gun, which he'd planned to kill someone with that evening, buried it in a field. He had decided that Jesus was worth more than the money he was going to get from that. And now, he's working with his hands, doing manual labor, and then serving part-time as a missionary in his local region. I know he's not the first criminal that God has used. Paul, Moses, let's talk about some of the shenanigans of the patriarchs, right? God uses people in extraordinary ways. And this is the love of Jesus reaching someone who never heard it. It reminds me of Isaiah 2.4. God shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. I love this line. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Learn war anymore. That's what this man's story is like. This is the power and liberty of the gospel is going forth around the world. But this effort needs more advocacy. It needs more funding. It needs more technology. It needs more intelligence put into it. It needs smart people. And in Bihar, you see, Jesus', Jesus economy, we now have four indigenous church planters. We funded their training and sponsorship through online platform, right? Probably not a surprise to you, but seriously, this is, actually doesn't happen that much. So they could launch churches in new communities, and we funded this through people giving directly to them and every last dollar going toward their sponsorship. People right, started birthday campaigns where they, instead of getting birthday gifts, they could dedicate the money to church planting. People had held events. Same thing, right? Have donation meter automatically updates dedicated to church planting. This is how we were able to fund these efforts. And this is just the start of the potential of what could be happening in our world. So imagine what could occur if we call people to embody Paul's teaching to Timothy. Near the end of 1 Timothy, Paul says, let no one despise you for your youth. Let no one despise you for your youth. I sure hope this isn't going on in our world anymore, because remember, like, Mark Zuckerberg was, what, like, five when he launched Facebook? He was, like, 22, right? Um, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, right, to inspiring people with it, to teaching, to teaching them how to use it. Do not neglect the gifts you have. Do not neglect the gifts you have. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself. Be accountable, right? And on the teaching, persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You will save both yourself and your hearers. He's telling them, lead by example. Be consistent. Be transparent. Be open. Bring people to the message of Christ with how you live. I love this stuff. Paul instructs Timothy to continue to embrace his gifts. He tells him to devote himself to the work of the gospel and to do so with self-discipline. Paul calls Timothy to bring the saving work of Jesus to others. 
to bring the saving work of Jesus to others, despite every obstacle. And Paul can say these words because he himself has led by example. But this type of change in our world is almost like a reformation, right? It's going to be a complete change. It means a complete shift of our Christian culture in the U.S. And let me tell you, we don't have a culture. We do. It's messed up. It will be a long, long race. We have to run it first. And reflecting back upon his many efforts to spread the gospel and alleviate poverty, an older Paul says to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Since 2 Timothy. Paul is not just saying the reality of his life. He is calling Timothy to run the same race. And that, my friends, is my call to you. Run this race. This is the race of your life. This is the one that matters. This is a marathon, not a sprint. We're going to be strategic. We are going to be strategic and smart. We're going to bring these things together. We should never ask someone to do something we are not willing to do ourselves or at least trying to live already. And ideally, we should be living it already ourselves before we even make the ask. We need to say, listen, I'll go first, right? We all love the guy who's going to jump off the crazy rope swing. He's like, hey, I'll do it first. And he may die. Okay. Well, at least he did it. <laughs> this is the thing, right? What is the risk at the end of the day? We are all going to die someday. We are all going to die. You never hear an old person, right? We've, always, we've all heard this. You never hear an old person say, you know, I shouldn't have taken so many risks. You just don't hear that. I have been at a lot of bedsides. You hear people tell you to live your life, to do it, to love well. Their regrets are about not loving enough, not taking enough risks. I'm going to place a bet. Here's the thing that happened, right? Could be a myth, but it's a great story anyways. Charles Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was an incredible minister. The story goes that one day there was a snowstorm in his region. And what occurred is that he, as a young child, decided to go to church. He got there. There was just this old elder there of the church. And the old elder said, well, son, I guess the preacher's not coming. I guess I'll preach. The guy got up, rambled about some text, probably out of Ezra or Chronicles or something. <laughs> and he said, well, do you want to believe in Jesus? I mean, I think this is a pretty good story. He came to Christ. Let me tell you, a whole generation of people wouldn't have found their way to Jesus if it wasn't for that old man. That old guy who decided, hey, guess what? I think I'll preach today. I think I'll take the risk. I think I'll go through the snow. I think I'll get there. He brought him to Christ. This is the kind of people we need in our world. I'm not asking you to necessarily do something extraordinary. What I'm asking you is to live a questionable life. A life that people look at and say, you know what, that, that is someone who's living for Jesus. That is someone who I could follow. That is an example that is worth living. We need faith that is put directly into action. The book of James talks about this at length. It talks about how faith without works is dead. We cannot simply critique and talk because that's not faith, friends. 
Christianity is not about mere intellectual assent. It's about action. Faith without works is dead. It's the people who made incredible sacrifices for Jesus, who joined our Lord not just in his glory, but also in his suffering that inspire me. My friend, Bijou Thomas, the pioneering missionary in Northeast India, the guy who left a very wealthy state called Kerala, known as God's own country. It's a good name for a state. Goes to Bihar, India, known as the graveyard of missions, to follow Jesus, bring people, the unreached, to Christ, alleviate poverty, meet needs. He did this. And he is the reason. He's the guy, the elder in the church, who talked to them, told the message. And now a whole movement is going on there because of his sacrifice. And it has been painful for this man. Unbelievably painful. But he's an inspiration. He's the reason why I'm involved there. There's some days that I think he may be the reason why I still believe in Jesus. Because I see people like him, and I can't help but believe. I shattered him. I was amazed by what was going on. I was amazed by the change in people's lives. I was amazed at how if you're just affiliated with him, you're welcomed. I was amazed at what he's doing. He is bringing Jesus' freedom and liberty to those who don't have it. Bijou is the type of person who goes first. He's made incredible sacrifices. And that's why I followed him. And I wouldn't want to follow anybody else but somebody like him. So my story, right? I saw this. I witnessed it. I had experienced it. I tasted the culture, the food, the life. I had seen the pain. I had seen the unreached. And I had heard of men like the assassin who came to Christ. And I heard their stories. I lived it. And I came back. And I began to work on my exit strategy. Because I realized something needed to be done. Somebody from here needed to go first. I don't say this to lift myself up, because this is not glory, friends. I don't make money. I, I estimate that I you know, have a negative balance toward my account of what Jesus Economy has paid me by thousands upon thousands of dollars. It's not glory. I say this, I only tell this story, because I believe that in this room, there could be a Spurgeon. And if there is, the one, that one, that one could change the world. And it's all we need. What if it's all of you? Wow. Just wow. So I ask you, are you willing to run the long haul, the marathon? Are you willing to endure the pain? Maybe not yet. You won't have strength on your own. Let me tell you, I've been at the empty. I have been there. I have suffered. I have cried. I have weeped. I have cried to my wife and hid it from my wife because this hurts. But at the end of the day, it reminds me of one single story. I tried to adopt a little girl at one point. I haven't told the story in public, so it's going to be hard for me. Um, I tried to adopt a little girl, my wife and I, and it didn't work out. We found out in a very, very painful way. Our car wasn't available to us. We're stuck in the middle of Canada somewhere, just bleeding money out in this hotel we had to be at for a while. I got the call. 
We weren't going to get her. She wasn't going to be ours. She lived with us pretty much for about a year. Loved her. She's our baby. And I just remember holding my wife and crying out to God. And I don't know if it was some vision from the Passion of the Christ or if it was an actual vision, but seeing Jesus go up the hill in this crappy hotel in this one-horse town, I'm thinking this, going up the hill with a cross on his back, bleeding from me, sacrificing for me, for my sin, what does he have to gain? Nothing. Nothing. There's no gain for him in saving me. Nothing. I'm a sinner. I'm far gone. I'm impoverished spiritually. I'm poor in spirit, as Matthew puts it. And he walks up that hill, and he's going to die for me. And as the amazing grace goes, I hear my voice cry out among the scoffers. And I thought about this little girl. I thought, if this is what it means to love without gain, and this has been worth it, because I finally learned, I finally learned what it means to truly follow Jesus, to love with no gain, to love purely for the sake of loving, to love when it even costs me, to love when it's sacrifice. And that's what I'm asking of you. You live in a place, you're in a world where they're going to tell you, they're going to tell you the best thing for you is to make money, build an incredible career, have all the money in the world, beautiful house, white picket fence. That's not the gospel, friends. Jesus today is asking all of us, what are we willing to give? Are we willing to sell everything and follow him? Are we willing to go? We're willing to do it. Think about it.